Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Welcome to The Signal Line. I'm Daz Smith. Today's podcast is a Zoom community discussion on 28th of May 2021. The topic is Associative Remote Viewing, the Art and Science of Predicting Outcomes for Sports, Politics, Finances and the Lottery. This is based on a new book soon to be published by the authors Deborah Lynn Katz and John Knowles. We hope you enjoy this really heated, really interesting discussion about all topics containing our ARV and look forward to the comments below. Thank you. Jana says, hi, Deborah, congratulations on your dissertation. Oh, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Should we wait till later? I was wondering what the dissertation was, like what's the title of it, but maybe we should wait till later to ask that. Um, sure, I can, I can tell you, hang on, because I have a couple, um, well, I'm changing my title, but right now the new title is Why Psychologists Don't Like Pop Psychology, a Comparative Analysis of Popular Versus Academic Books. So it's an exploration into uh, why so many psychologists really Um, they have very negative views against popular psychology books, which I was really surprised when I got into graduate school, because of course I expected people to be uh, negative about parapsychology in these topics, but I didn't expect them to also be so skeptical about just any books that actually help people. So have a lot more understanding of that topic now. And that wasn't really the topic I intended to start off with, but I, in the end, I didn't have any faculty to supervise me on a remote viewing project. So I uh, worked out this project with my history of psychology instructor that I had a good relationship with. So that's why nothing, I was gonna do it on remote viewing and development of uh, psychic abilities. Now you can supervise the next generations because it's obvious the movement's growing. Yeah, yeah, um, I'll do you know what I can. And, and it was definitely cathartic being able at the same time as I was finishing up that to be able to work on this book with John and talk about, even though I'm interested in the topic I wrote about for my dissertation, I'm so more enthusiastic about this so it was just great in the end to know that I could be working on what I was really passionate about and and doing it with someone who is just as brilliant as my instructors but who I could just you know relax with and have a good time with excellent so I've let most of the stragglers in I'll keep an eye on the window um, for the people that are new here, uh, feel free to put your hand up in the uh, participants window uh, to ask any questions. And you can do that by voice. Or if you're a bit shy and you don't want to, you can also oh, bear with me a second. 
you can also uh, type your questions in the chat window and hopefully we'll catch that and ask that for you as well. So that's pretty much the rules. You know, everyone be courteous and try not to talk e over each other. And we're going to have a bit of fun this evening talking about ARV, uh, Associate Remote Viewing. And it's uh, going to be mainly about the book by Deborah Linkatz and John Knowles, which is going to be really interesting. It's called The Associate Re Remote Viewing, The Art and Science of Predicting Outcomes for Sports, Politics, Finances and the Lottery. Um, so a really interesting subject, close to my heart. Um, and I guess I'll just hand over to you guys to take away from there. It should be a really interesting evening. Deborah, you want to start? Uh, sure. Uh, so yeah, thank you everyone for coming today and for your interest. And uh, you know, we're really looking at this as just a discussion as opposed to a formal presentation. So uh, I know we have several people here who have been working very hard at remote viewing overall and associative remote viewing. And we'd love to just talk about these topics. And I mean, we're very happy to tell you about our book and, and how we got started with it. I think maybe that's what we'll, we can start off doing, but we definitely wanna hear from you all. And you know, every time John and I, you, you, probably many of you are familiar with us just because we pop up everywhere because we're just so excited about all of these topics. So every time we show up, even though we're kind of uh, being featured here, uh, we, just as much are hoping to learn something from all of you. And um, I'll just tell you a little bit about how the book came about. And um, basically, I know for myself, I believe for John too, we didn't ever think that we were gonna write a book about this, but we've been working both um, independently and then kind of meeting up from time to time um, in this field for about um, 10 years. I I've been uh, very active in psychic work now for 25 years. So my, um, uh, and it was more from a perspective of um, clairvoyant reading of people and mediumship. And I went through a training program uh, about 25 years ago. And then I wrote a couple books on the subject starting in 2004 and in 2008, You Are Psychic and Extraordinary Psychic. But then I have a, uh, throughout all that period, I was reading a lot about remote viewing and Russell Targ's books and, and all of that. But I really got intensely focused on remote viewing about a decade ago. And that and right around that time was when I went to my first Irva conference and I also met uh, Marty Rosenblatt at that time. And really when I got into, um, I was at an IRVA conference and there was a notice that he had a, uh, just some groups going for free practice. So really I got involved in ARV because I just wanted to practice remote viewing. And I have to say 10 years later, that's really why I'm still involved. Uh, I, I don't do as much anymore. Uh, personally, but I still do ARV occasionally from time to time. Um, but I, I still do lots of different remote viewing projects, both as a viewer and as a project manager. Um, but still, even now, my desire to get involved was to learn about remote viewing and have free practice opportunities. And now free, you should probably put quotes around that because 
I ended up becoming the webmaster for the Applied Precognition Project with Marty and, and just donating hundreds of hours, to, not just to that organization, but to just, uh, I got very heavily involved in research and I'm on the board of the um, International Remote Viewing Association, IRVA now, but in the early days I got involved, it just got kind of sucked into research projects and, uh, and then from doing those projects, I realized that I really needed to, to hone my remote viewing or to hone my research skills. So that was why I went into graduate school was so I could get better at doing remote viewing research. So uh, basically fast forward to a couple years ago, um, after doing so much um, writing and research and work in the field, I just, I, I was feeling like I had all these articles all over the place and all these like pieces of knowledge that I had gained, but it just kind of seemed scattered. And I realized that we might really have enough to put into um, one central place. Cause uh, my, I never want to waste my time and I don't want to waste anyone else's time. So I'm kind of obsessed. And I, I, I think that probably a lot of people here, I know John and and Daz with all his intensive documenting um, is of the same mind that, you know, if we're getting knowledge for ourselves, it's a waste of time if we're not sharing it with others. And what are the best ways that we can share knowledge? And we all have different ways of doing it. You know, we've got the Reddit moderators here who are sharing and getting people participating in one way. And then we've got the formal uh, parapsychology scientific venues of, of journal articles there. We've got, there's just so many different ways to get out information. And so we've, John and I both got to the point where we felt like we had so much and we wanted to put it all together. I would never have done this without John um, because he's he has certain uh, knowledge in this area that I don't. And so we were able to just bring together our uh, knowledge. And at that, a couple of years ago, we or maybe three years ago now, we both began working in the Ingo Swan archives because they're located at the school I went to, University of West Georgia. And so we, um, I was living out there. And so he came to visit and, and stayed with me for a little bit. And that's where we first started talking about putting together the book. And then it just, it just grew from there. And I have to say, it's just, it's been really cathartic because for the last 10 years, I thought I was just donating my time and, you know, I would get, um, I would make a little bit of money here or there, but because that wasn't my main intention with ARV, I just thought, well, uh, I am, you know, just donating my time, but now, um, we've, we were really able to bring this all together. So I think I'm repeating myself. So I'll give it over to John now. Okay. Thanks, Deborah. And it's been great working with, with Deborah. You know, we've been at this for about a year. I don't think we've had an argument once, you know, we really actually are working pretty quite well together and our knowledge bases com uh, complement each other. So it's, uh, it's really been uh, a pleasure to do this. It's a, it's a massive task if you ever decide to write a five or 600 page book. We actually have 600 pages now. Um, <laughs> think twice before you get into it. Um, but I'll also just say a little bit about my background for those not familiar. Uh, I've been in this as long as Daz, almost as long as Daz. Um, uh, starting about 1999, uh, I heard about transdimensional systems led by Prue Calabrese. Uh, I trained with them. 
became part of their team, not the core though, they were the core in Carlsbad, it was uh, the main people. Uh, and for those who don't know, Transdimensional Systems was the most successful early remote viewing business with clients and a, uh, a patron who gave them a million dollars to use for salaries. So for a little while, they had $80,000 salaries for, for remote viewers that fell apart for various reasons. Um, so I stayed with them until all of a sudden they shut down, we shut down in March of 2003. I was the training coordinator at that point. And we had about 15 people in what was called the Banana Slam program. And we had a second training program with uh, Athena leading it. She came out of the Farsight Institute, a really excellent viewer. Anyway, proof shut down, boom, in March of 2003, and we were left high and dry. Um, this is a long story about that. I put it in my book called Remote Viewing from the Ground Up, which is mainly about transdimensional systems. So after that, I worked uh, with Don Walker, who was a uh, member of the public demonstration team on transdimensional systems. How many public demonstration teams have there been? One, as far as I know, other than Joe McMonagall, who's so well. Um, and then we uh, worked on an ARV, uh, Don and I and, and Athena for a while, uh, partly because it was a challenge and we wanted to see if we could do it. Um, eventually we ended up, uh, Don and I joining Marty in the APP, which was the, was the PIA at the time, had a different name. And we worked uh, some experiments there that have been also, which will be detailed in our book, uh, some that Marty suggested and some that we suggested. And also I got involved with, as Deborah did intimately with, uh, with Marty as APP, I was helping him, or he was helping me with uh, programming uh, using the R language, which I didn't know much about. I helped out a little bit, but Marty's the programmer. So I got uh, access to the database too. So I'm familiar with the results from the APP uh, years of experimentation with that. Um, in 2016, uh, I left APP as a pra uh, participating member, although I'm still a member and you know, presented with Deborah recently at the conference. I left over a difference of uh, vision. Marty uh, thought that we should uh, grow exponentially if we're gonna change society. And I didn't think we had the resources to do that. So that was the main reason I left. There were other issues, but that was the main one. So uh, after that, um, well, actually, I'm sorry, before that, actually, uh, I worked with Daz and others in the Aurora Remote Viewing Group for three years. We tried to get a launch a business, and that actually proved very difficult. We certainly learned the ins and outs in that. We had a few customers, but we were on three continents. We were in different time zones. Maybe uh, I didn't have the skill, or maybe even Daz didn't have the skill as a business person. But um, so we, uh, we had to fold that up after a while. But it was also a very good learning experience to find out about how it, what it takes to run a business. And that's why there's so few successful remote viewing businesses in the world today, as you know. So after 2016, I've just been on my own and uh, ARV I've been working on for 10 years or so, again, for the challenge. And also, you know, to see if one could uh, get numbers in the lottery. Uh, and I'm self-critical that I didn't spend enough time, haven't spent enough time looking at just regular numbers in the past, present, or future. Um, but there have been some interesting developments in the lottery field, which are not generally known in the, in the uh, in, in the remote viewing community, and that's in our book too. We have two chapters on the lottery. Um, so that in brief is, uh, I guess, my quick introduction. So yeah, people, and I, yeah. I just wanted to say that we're happy to like talk about anything you guys want to talk about. And I know like I always 
don't, I never like it if someone says, oh, let me talk about my book and then won't give answers and says, just read it. So, you know, we, we can't like dictate the entire book here, but any questions you want to know about anything, we will, you know, wholeheartedly do our best to answer right here, right now. I'm sharing the table of contents too, if that's visible. Can you see that? Okay. So just to know the chapters that we've, uh, we're covering again. If anybody wants to know about any specific chapters, we can try to go into some of that. And and I see someone asked, um, uh, there's a bunch of questions here. I'll just skip around a little bit. Um, will there be a hardback copy or paperback? Uh, definitely paperback, but um, we'll, we'll look at the hardcover too. That's a good idea. I, I don't think we've talked about that yet. And then um, Don asked, is this a how-to book or more like a statistical analysis book? And I would really say both and everything in between. So we, wherever we could get stats from, uh, from different people on, on the different topics, uh, we did that. And there were, again, all kinds of levels from peer-reviewed articles where the stats have already been check to um, uh, us taking what people told us. And we always try to be real careful to say like, this has been confirmed or this has just been, this has been semi-confirmed. We tried to not just go on just what someone just told us without any confirmation, but there, there could be a couple cases of that, but we try to make it really clear uh, the levels of certainty or confidence we have with the information. And even if we weren't completely um, confident of the accuracy of the information. We presented it because we, we wanted people to be able to go out and take the information in the book and go out and practice it and apply it. So we always ask, what are the method, what methods did the viewers use? What methods did you use as a project manager? Now, not everybody is upfront about all their methods. And so that was a little bit of a challenge. Some people very much like Alexis, um, I don't know if he's here today, poll quiz, but he gave us like every version of his dung beetle scoring system that he's had and, and explained uh, all the changes in it. So if anyone wanted to like use that system and, and look at how it's developed, it's we have a whole chapter on that. So part of how forthright we were able to be depending on what we were uh, told as far as the people who gave us information. But then we also have a book, uh, we have a chapter on how to remote view, um, a chapter on developing sketches. Um, I, I'm really excited about our chapter on direct viewing of graphs because that's something that's showing promise and seems to be new and just different viewers just happen to be using that approach. We can talk about that in a little bit, but so we wanted to find out exactly what approach with that are, are people using. And so, because that, that's really my personal interest is how are the remote viewers uh, uh, directing themselves to get the information. And so we have a lot in the book is that on that as well. On this question of 70% that uh, somebody asked here, um, Paul Cosby. Um, yeah, the APP stats, which are the most extensive, show only three people who have 70% or over after 20 sessions. And it goes down from there. 
Uh, there was one group that had 70% for about a year, uh, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Um, we don't know why uh, 65 to 70% or around there, there's a range, seems to be arranged with your peers, not only in many practical experiments, but also in some of the research about the 60, 65, 68%. There's no, no, we don't know. Um, you know, there's a lot about remote viewing we don't know, a lot about ARV we don't know, but it does appear that uh, between 60 and 75% is your, I don't know, Goldilocks zone or something you can try to function in there and make headway. Um, but I don't have any other answer for that. Well, we, we can definitely speculate. So we have two whole chapters on displacement and um, one on the history of displacement, which goes back a hundred years, which people don't, um, we didn't even know that until this year, how far back uh, the issue of displacement and parapsychology um, experiments that closely mirror ARV setups. Uh, there, uh, there was, um, um, Wheatley Carrington has talked about how he thought the whole setup should just be uh, abandoned, and this was already in the 1940s, I believe. I'd have to look back at the notes. But so displacement is definitely an issue. We, we talk about the theories and, and give some tips for what we've found to not be a, a final solution or absolute. I still continue to get uh, very clear instances of displacement in my own sessions, but so we, we can talk about some reasons for displacement, but personally, I feel like that does account for a most likely a large a percentage of uh, reasons why people do have misses in ARV. Um, another, sometimes I think um, people that there's different ideas about how much time you need to spend on your session in an ARV uh, setup. And of course it would depend, there's different factors like what kind of target are you viewing? You know, is it is it something that's so simple where you just need to get a color or is it something just like a shape that goes, um, you know, just, is it a square or a circle or is it, is the target a video? Uh, what So depending on is it a location or simple objects? So depending on what the target is, you may need less or more information. But I feel that sometimes um, I've seen where viewers aren't, they don't take enough time. And um, so that could also account for some things, although that really shouldn't account for a miss. I would say that should account for maybe a pass if a judge doesn't have just enough information to make a decision. But that wouldn't really, um, you know, also, I guess another factor would be how is the judging and scoring happening and our misses being, um, our, our, our passes being used. If passes are being used and predictions are only being made if the score is a high enough score or if there's a, a large enough spread between the two sessions, then that should help with things. And in some of um, the past research that we've done, we've found uh, that it does seem to make a difference if you um, only make a prediction if, if it's a really strong session and there's other people to you know, back that up as well. But again, it's, it's hard to 
speak in general terms because it's possible to just change one aspect of a project and then everything else changes as well. Yeah, I'll say something else about displacement too. Um, and also bring in uh, the 70% figure. So just to give what my impression is of the most successful ARV that in terms of uh, making or raising money was Joe McMonagle, who claimed that uh, in about 2013 at an APP conference that he had used the software that Ed May developed, which we call computer assisted scoring, and that he had made $3.5 million working with an investor to build a medical facility in Central America. Now we haven't seen any um, evidence of that, but you know, Joe doesn't make things up, generally speaking. Um, and I found some additional information to confirm that that's what actually happened. Um, and, but also when Joe made that claim during the session, a lot of us were startled that that much money had been made. So over dinner, I said, Joe, so you really did make 3.5 million because you said the investor blew about 9 million. You guys have been up to 12 million and, and you blew 9 million and you still had enough left. And he, he said, yes. And I said, well, you know, we did a lot of experiments with the computer assisted scoring that Ed May generously loaned to us or gave to us at APP. And the viewers, actually the hit rate was around 67% as I reviewed it for those that followed Ed May's instructions. There were a couple who were trying to do different variables and, and see what worked and what didn't. So it was, it was reasonably successful, but the problem was there was like 80% passes because unless you get a high enough figure of merit, which is 0.4519 for the reliability and the accuracy, you're not supposed to make a bet. So Joe pounded the table right in front of me and said, damn it, they're pros, they should just keep at it. So Deborah may have a different opinion about CAS because she worked for a whole year with Dick Bierman and uh, Ed May using the CAS software. But I'm pretty convinced based on what some other folks have said, for example, Ed May said he wasn't involved in that, uh, making that money. Um, but I found out that some other people uh, confirmed that Joe probably was working just with the investor who had access to the software. So anyway, I want to say that passing a lot can produce great results. And that's why Ed May and, and his team spent 20 years developing the software to make that possible. Uh, that software is now being used at the University of Colorado, but otherwise it's not generally available. We had a copy, but it's a little bit buggy and it hasn't been, um, it's not just being used other than from what I know at the University of Colorado. So I just want to make that point about the fact that it is possible to get above 70% and you got Joe McMonagle telling you it's possible. It had May too, for that matter. Except, um, ex yeah. except, except, except <laughs> just a little bit. So when we talk about 70%, what are we really talking about? Um, that I think is, is usually referred to as a long-term um, statistic. So over the course of many trials or many projects or years, it seems to be that, but we there's many people here who've had shorter runs that were met much better than that, um, in, including myself, like 89% um, uh, or you know 81% in different in different projects. And the thing is, even with um, with the CAS computer assistant scoring that John just talked about. Um, well, for one, um, Joe himself has done poorly with some trials. I know on at least two projects, they didn't go well for him and other people who were considered the top viewers. So he may have 
help win millions of dollars, but he has not had a hundred percent hit. I don't know. We don't know what Joe's overall um, hit rate is when it comes to ARV. But what I do know is that some projects haven't gone well. Um, and, and then for the project that I did 40, 47 or so, 46 trials over a year, led by Dick Bierman with Ed May as the raider, we were using his system and his system should have um, stopped predictions from going through that. The only way a prediction could happen is if there was a high figure of merit score. And yet in the end, um, and so I had many great sessions, um, the figure of merit score, which means it was really high for one photo, low for the others, it still didn't prevent us from having misses. So, so on the one hand, we have an example where it's worked, but we don't know how many trials it worked for Joe. And then on the other hand, for, you know, I, if, if the viewing isn't decent, then there just should be nonstop passes, but that wasn't the case. So there's a lot of questions about this. And this always brings me back personally, I, and I, I still have a question about this. And if anyone has any insights into this, I would, I would love to know this. Why do people wanna have so many predictions, like fewer predictions, less money? My approach would be, get some good viewers, have high standards as far as whether or not you're going to make a prediction or pass, and then just bet higher amounts of money for a short period of time and then get out. Because when, when we look at the history of like when Targ and Pudoff and um, other people made like their $150,000 or so, it was for like 10 trials. So we know viewers can, can have these stats up higher for the shorter periods of time. It's just keeping it up. And within all of parapsychology, actually in all of psychology, we know that there does tend to be burnout over time. People get tired, they get bored. Um, they, uh, in remote viewing, I think that sometimes we get overexposed to photographs, you know, what, what happened the week before or what just the different dynamics, it, it's going to start to get to us. So my vote would be to just do a shorter amount of trials and, and, to, and to be careful. But yeah, a lot of people look at passes as failures because they don't want to take the time. And you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do this, why, why not um, just be patient? Yeah, anyone wanna, I see some hands up. Why don't we call on a couple of people? It looks like, um, ka, is that Kamikaze? Um, had their hand That's up. <laughs> Um, well, to answer your question, I mean, when I personally started with APP, I, I was really incentivized by the uh, the Precog Pro program. So I was trying to hit those numbers right away and become a part of that program. So since then, I finally learned to embrace passing when I don't think I have it. But uh, my, my question for you guys actually was... Uh, there's something, and to me, it feels like an old wives' tale floating around at least the Discord community, where when you're do practicing ARV, if you're essentially primarily practicing ARV as opposed to other kinds of targets, that your overall remote viewing accuracy will decrease. 
And I was wondering if in your guys' research for this book, if you found any evidence to suggest whether or not there's any truth to that. So I would say, well, we, we haven't found any evidence to that, like on the outside. Now I've noticed with my own, my own remote viewing, if it, and it, it's, it's the difference between, are you just doing quick sessions for sketches versus are you taking all the time you could be taking for say a, a real life target? And, and there are a lot of people who find out about remote viewing through ARV and that's all they've done. And they don't understand how you can develop a session. So they, so I, I teach remote viewing and um, I will have someone who says, yeah, I've been, you know, remote viewing for a little bit and they come into my class. And so I look at their sessions for the first couple of times and there's one page for like a whole location or, you know, some complex target and there's only one page and, you know, they, they've gotten a little bit, but there's so much more to, you know, okay, the, there's a rectangular building and you got a rectangular building that, that, and that's great for a new viewer to know that they got something, but that's not giving us the information that we need. So, uh, so people may not even know how to develop a session and get all that information, or they may just get lazy. And, and my thing I noticed with myself is I get addicted to the feedback now, not everyone, you know, cares so much about feedback, but I, I do. So I find like, I then just want my feedback really fast. I don't want to take the amount of time I usually would, you know, remote viewing to really get all the information you need, depending on what the target is, you know, you may, if you, if you lose something at your own house, you might only need to tune in for like five seconds. You see something you recognize, you could go run and look for it and you're done. That's all, like you may not even call, some people wouldn't even call that remote viewing. I still do, but I don't wanna get into a debate on semantics. But but then if if it's not at your house and it's somewhere where where maybe it's like, 10 miles away and everything around you looks the same, you might need to do hours of a remote viewing session to make sure that you described everything so you can get to there. And so it's just so easy to get lazy. And that's my own personal opinion. And, you know, it's not irreparable. It's just then the person has to go back and practice. And that's what, you know, I've been doing lately is just trying to uh, practice more with more in-depth targets. Um, but I was curious with, with the APPI, um, how you found, um, because you do, my, my concern with, with that setup was that like you had to get so many trials right before you get paid. And like, what if you get 10 in a row and you do great, but then the next uh, eight, you don't do well, then you, and then it resets and you try again. I was, I was worried it would lead to burnout and I got started with it myself. I was the first person to be signed on to that, but then I just, I got too busy and I just got, I didn't want to have to do so many sessions before I, you know, felt like I could start to see a profit, but how did you find that? 
Well, personally, I'm, I'm still chasing the program. I'm actually about, uh, I, I keep hitting one prediction prediction short of the mark. Oh no. Uh, entry gates. Yeah. Um, sorry, this is my son. Um, what, what I've found I, I, overall is that, uh, one, one second. I'm, you, you may want to answer some other questions. I, I think I got to address him really quick. I'm sorry. You know what, what I really liked, and then I'll let someone else talk. Um, what I really liked was when we, when Marty first started APPI, we uh, did it where he would, he would wager. And if he had a hit, um, we got 50% of what, of the earnings of that particular wager. And we got that right away per trial. And then if there was a miss, we didn't, you know, get dinged anything. So I really liked that because there was no risk for us. And he was making a risk with, with um, putting his own money. in. so sure, it's fair for him to get, you know, 50% for that. But that was, I love that. It was very clean. He sent us um, our results when we asked for them and we did really well, but we only did about, um, I think that was like 11 or so of those. And, um, and then we went on to other things, but I, I like that a lot better than this thing uh, that tries to incentivize you to keep doing more and more. That's my own opinion though. I'd like to uh, sort of second that, that the importance uh, of getting a, a grounding in regular remote viewing. So and not just ARV, um, I think that the Reddit group and monitors are doing a terrific job, as, as I've said to them. However, um, I think there's too much focus, in my opinion, on uh, ARV and particularly RV tournament. And I say that as someone who's been spending the last 10, 10 or 15 years exploring alphanumerics and uh, ARV. I, but I got, you know, I got a grounding in a very intensive program with transdimensional systems lasting over six months. And then we had weekends where we would go down for further training. Uh, that was daily training. And we were very fortunate, it was very free. Um, and I just think there's no substitute, whether you're using CRV or transdimensional method or some other for a so-called method approaches. I think it just gives you a grounding and ability to take part in operational projects that you won't get just doing ARV. So if you have broader aims than just doing ARV, for sure, you know, like Don's here, Don, uh, learned about some TV uh, transdimensional, and now I think you're learning CRV, uh, right? So I'll go for it. You know, get some detailed training. It uh, doesn't matter really. Uh, the all the instructors out there, not all of them, but many of them are very capable in CRV. Uh, and <laughs> I haven't trained with any of them. You know, I have my own tra training in TDRV. So I just want to put that in. I think don't spend too much time on ARV initially, in my humble opinion. You know, get some basic training and regular remote viewing. And may, maybe um, as we're still talking, maybe I can pull up my screen and even show you my slides with the sketching development to give you an example of what we're talking about. Um, why don't I do that if that's okay, Daz? Um, I'll just go ahead and do that. And then we can also answer some other questions, but I'll just uh, scroll down. I had um, just, did this presentation, uh, John and I did for a conference. So I already have these slides here, but um, I love looking at uh, remote viewing sketches and 
Um, there's some really good examples too on the Applied Precognition website that um, we had put up years ago that are still up there of samples. Um, let's just see if we could get these to load. Okay, I'll just run through these really quick. Let me just make sure you can see my screen here. So I just wanted to give examples of how I don't have like the alternative. Well, some of these didn't have alternative photos. So some of these were just straight here. Here's a target. So these weren't ARV, but this is this is on par with, with what happens in ARV. So you can imagine, um, this is a very simple sketch here, but you could imagine if there was this picture of a rope and let's say a picture of what a house or a garden, this is all we would need. This is really, really so simple, but so cool. This is from one of my students from Pakistan. And then um, now this was what I was talking about. This was a, uh, I assigned my students a whole event, which was Beyonce's Coachella concert. And so I told them I wanted to be as, them as detailed as possible about the location and the event. And um, this, and first I had them the first couple of weeks of class, they only focused on objects on simple objects. And then they went to this very complex scene and um, in Allah still, this was all she turned in for her whole session. Now this is pretty cool because the whole concert takes place on a bleachers with Beyonce at the bottom. So I thought, well, this is, if you were gonna do such a simple depiction of the whole thing, it's pretty cool. But if we were, let's say investigators wanting to understand like what was Beyonce doing on Saturday night, you know, this wouldn't tell us anything. So, or much of, anything, she was by some steers. So the, that's an example of why you often need more. Um, this is Dave Wallace, He um, and he's someone at App doing APPI. He just got, um, he, he's at the 70% rate. By the way, parapsychologists and, uh, and people that do uh, trading, they, well, parapsychologists say if you get over like 52, 53%, you're, that's way above chance, or at least to prove that there's an effect. And um, and different statisticians I've been working with have said, you know, yeah, if you could keep up a seventy percent rate, uh, you're you're doing so great with with this. You're going to make money over the long term. There's probably people here who could speak about this way better than I could. But so even though I know my own reaction is like, I don't want seventy percent. I want to be at ninety five percent. 70% uh, is considered quite well, and, and maybe other people can speak up about that here. Um, again, I'm not a financial person or anything. Uh, now, this was Carl. Carl's in the UK, and um, again, this is a this is a great sketch. Uh, not exactly a lion, but really close. And so we're going from simple to complex. Uh, Teresa, who some of you know. Um, I love this one, a person on a swing, um, very, very nice uh, and moderate to complex. Now you can see here, I, it was mentioned to um, our V tournament. Um, a lot of times I, I love on the application and I play with it too sometimes, but 
you know, you really can't do too detailed of a drawing on there. And some people, maybe they do spend time, but that's something where, again, I, I want to go right to um, judging at which uh, we could talk about this later about displacement, but the fact that like you want to see the judging photos, it's almost like that's your, I call that your false feedback. And I find like I'm just in too much of a hurry on RV tournament. And I think not, not to speak for everyone, but I think there's that inclination. And um, this is a nice one, simple, but what a great depiction of a picture. I'm just going to go a little quicker. Uh, Dave Silverstein's um, very nice depiction with the positioning. He's got a bunch of people hanging out of the side of the boat. I thought that was really cute over there, even though there's just one guy, he put all the people outside the boat attached to it. Dave um, has usually does longer sessions. So these are getting to be a little bit more complex. Uh, this was one of my students recently. And um, this was an example of where I monitored her and after 15 minutes, she was tired. She was feeling stressed because I monitored her in front of the rest of the class and she wanted to end, but she only had, she had a rectangular shape, but she didn't have the triangle shapes on top. And so I was like, no, let's stay in. I want you to go up above the location and look down. And what do you see when you go up above? So this is this is part of, it, it doesn't have to be controlled remote viewing. Um, you do this in extended remote viewing too, but you move around the target. You look at it from different angles, you touch it, you interact with it. So this takes more time. So as soon as she went up and looked down, she said, oh, there's a triangular roof up there. And then she did more sketching and got the whole kind of triangular shape here. And then the, that there were other structures around and, and she got more, I, I didn't share, this is just one, this is what we call her compilation sketch at the end. It's not her whole session. She had like probably about eight pages um, and almost everything was correct. It was just, she wanted to stop at like five minutes and then 10 minutes. And I, I just forced her, well, I didn't force her, but I highly encouraged her to keep going. And she was very glad that she did. But this is an example of a lot of times somebody just doing ARV, either they're only given a short time, you know, because of the they're in a group situation, they're like, here, you have five minutes, or they just take the five minutes. Now, again, like looking at, um, was it, uh, forgot his name. Um, some people, sometimes you don't need any more. So I don't want anyone to think like we're saying, oh, you do need to take more time. Um, this is an example. This wasn't for ARV, but it was for, um, this was one of mine for a radio show host, um, the small world exhibit at Disneyland. And this is just showing like what happened. I mean, this probably, this was a final compilation, but I probably spent like an hour on this, um, this too, this was a, a practice target, um, but this was my final compilation sketch. I had lots of little sketches before, but again, this, this took about an hour of work to do to get the entire um, scene right there. And then I'll just show you a couple more. And then um, this is jo Joffrey. Um, I love this. Um, now, he was also doing this while he was being monitored by Paul Smith during a class. And again, the, what happens with monitoring is you do 
um, have somebody that's encouraging you to stay with it and making suggestions of where you could move and what you, you can do. And so you'll tend to oftentimes see more developed sessions with monitoring unless you have a disciplined remote viewer. Remote viewing requires discipline and patience and it's really tedious. And a lot of people just don't, they don't want to do that. And that's fine. There's no judgment on it. On it. Some people just don't want to do that. And then here's just the final one. Joyce, uh, she, um, th this was for a project she did with Angela Thompson Smith. And um, you could see she um, did really well here. She, again, I have several pages of her sessions and her first page, she did start to get crystals. So if this had only been for ARV, um, she did have a crystal on her first page and that would have been enough. But look how nicely this developed here that you just wouldn't see this if she hadn't taken her time. Okay, John, anything that you would like to add? Well, or I just thought maybe we should answer a couple of questions quickly that are in the chat and people have put them up there. Um, the one about uh, confidence, personal confidence. Uh, the very first lesson I had from Prue, I, I made a, a remark that was not showing confidence in what I was doing. She said, don't ever do that, you know, just, and so ever since then, I, and after I started getting some initial sessions that were clear that this was happening, um, I don't have any anxiety at all, whether I was doing uh, operational work, you know, in transdimensional systems or if I'm doing ARV or anything. I think that's very important to have, once you know that it's, it's happening, uh, just go with that and try not to be off, you know, you're gonna miss a lot. You're, gonna, you're not gonna get 100% in, in, in any remote viewing session. But yeah, I think personal confidence is, is vital. Now, Marty sometimes says, well, it, ARV, it's all psychological, and I don't agree with that. I think that the setup uh, plays a big role, and you can quote Joe McMonagle on both sides of that issue. We can come back to these, but I just wanted to answer another one too. What, what would be the ideal team member count for an ARV project? I don't think there is one. Uh, it depends on uh, what you want to do, but in general, it seems like small teams of two or three people uh, are very good. Some people prefer to work solo, like uh, Dave that uh, Deborah mentioned, uh, Kahu Dave is his other name, works solo, is very, very good in many facets of, of ARV. Um, and the team that won $325,000 in, in a lottery um, has a team of about five members with very distinct different roles uh, and minimizing feedback loops. In other words, it's, it's on a need to know basis what you get when you're on that team. So there's no ideal one, but smaller is better, generally speaking, and, and in fact, Marty says he stopped tracking the group results in APP. He named, he traps into he tracks individual results now only. So that's just uh, answer to a couple of those questions there. Uh, we also have Kiao who's had his hand up for quite a while. Okay, I hope uh, as usual I have three questions, so I'm only going to shoot out one. Uh, but first, uh, the obvious thing uh, that I'm very, very grateful to both of you guys uh, for your internet pages and Deborah for everything you've done with Jeffrey Mishlove, because of course I've been watching that stuff. And Deborah, your clairvoyance pages with front loading, in other words, in the categories, I was doing those about two years ago. I'm halfway through all of them, but boy, it really, really good 
experience. And John, uh, you know more than enough, I think, about how me I uh, go through your targets for my students too. So here we go. The first question: uh, Any recommendations on screening people for morality and psychological stability that are wanting to get started into remote viewing in a big online project? In other words, there's a huge one starting tomorrow in Mexico, and the thing is like, damn, how how do I know what I who I can tell what to who and, and and so you know and you know how far I can take the ability level for people that I've never even met I know you guys don't have the answers to everything but maybe you have some ideas could you Go just ahead, I I kind of missed the first part of your question oh okay uh, so any recommendations on screening people for morality and psychological stability. For morality, for example, in Mexico, we have at least 10,000 people get kidnapped every year. In other words, the crime rate in Mexico is much higher than it is in Canada and maybe even the US, I'm sure. So I, I wanna be careful that I don't have idiots that I'm teaching RV to, you know, even basic RV. I, I wanna be careful how, who gets, who's allowed to, to, to learn what we're offering. And then the psychological stability thing, I already have people telling me that I'm their guru and stuff like this. And it's like, what? So I, I don't, I'm trying to find a good mechanism to make sure that we're doing a good job and nobody gets, falls down along the way or stupid things happen. Are people paying you for your class? No, no, of course not. I, I'll never charge, but I'm not at the level you guys are to be teaching properly. So they're only seeing the basic intro steps. But some of these people are very high level. They're in the extraocular uh, movement, if you haven't heard about it, extraocular viewing movement. So again, some of these people are really high level, but some of them are like zero level. So, so John can answer first and then I'll take a stab at that. Well, a couple of points. Um, if you are actually enrolling them in a course, uh, many people, and we did it in Transdimensional, you send out a questionnaire first asking them about their background a little bit. And uh, there have been cases of psychotic breaks by people studying remote viewing. Um, I think Dean Radin was pointing out there's even breaks by people doing excessive amounts of meditation. And he also counted, uh, commented on his own Got Psy website that has millions of people uh, doing tests and he said well, of course we can't test them we don't know if they're legit we don't know if they're moral issues but they have a different form of data that they're getting from that and they're getting tons of data which they can use when you have huge data but if you're doing a smaller group i would i would suggest you know if you have hundreds of people it's a different matter you can't go through them individually so uh, just how what do you how many people are are enrolled there isn't a number yet but it look, looks like it's going to be at least 80 maybe between 80 and 140 and, and I would actually have filled out a questionnaire once for the Monroe Institute, but uh, what kind of questions do you recommend? Deborah, you wanna take over? Well, first I would say, if you're doing a class like that, you're not gonna be able to work, spend much time individually with very many people. And, you know, it, it's kind of a slippery slope, but people can already learn remote viewing from books, from videos you're not gonna stop anyone from, from learning. And if it's just broad like that, personally, I would say, you know, don't worry about it other than letting, you know, starting off letting people know what some of the problems are. 
Um, you know, it for people to really pursue this, they're going to have to put in the time and the effort and um, probably a lot of people that would possibly, you just can't control what people are doing with this, you know, and you can't control that, whether they're remote viewers or their managers, their, you know, their funding projects, their clients. I mean, you could say no to people when problems arise or, but, you know, with something, I wouldn't even worry about it. I would just, you know, let people know um, what the problems are with it. Now, the reason I asked about payment is, because, um, and not to suggest that, you know, you should charge people, but I've found that charging helps to um, weed out the people that aren't so serious. Now, of course, there's going to be plenty who so much want to do remote viewing, but just can't afford it. And what I do with that is I offer scholarships, like sometimes full rides or work exchanges or, um, but I, it's very interesting because the ones oftentimes that just um, that don't like, if I don't do it as a work exchange or, um, a lot of times the people just don't show, like you will say, okay, you can do this for free. And they're the ones that don't come to class. And they're the ones, you know, that don't, don't practice. Now that's not always the case, but it's kind of like, um, part of pain is people showing that they have some level of investment, but I, I like to do like a sliding scale or scholarships. And I like to find out from people too. Like, like I have a woman who contacted me, she has MS, multiple sclerosis and, and three kids. So she didn't ask, she didn't even ask for more than a discount, but I just said, I don't want you to pay anything. So it's, you know, I think, um, I found this with clients too. When when I was just practicing and didn't charge anything, I had so many issues with clients that now that my rates are up, I just don't have those those issues. But um, so yeah, I would say don't don't at this point don't worry about it too much. And then as far as them looking at you like you're a guru, you know you can solve that. For, I mean, some people want to like have that idea. But if you just always let people know, like, like you didn't come up with this, uh, like, you know, this is something that's Ingo could be credited as starting remote viewing, but not really people did it before him. But this was so many people have added to this. And so if you just share, you know, all the different remote viewers, re, uh, the resources out there, the books out there, uh, let people know that you're just one of a lineage teaching, then that's going to also help take care of the guru thing, you know, just refer to other people and, and encourage your people, you know, to not just study with yourself, but but everybody and to learn as much as they can. That's, that's what I always do in it. It seems like I look at it like we're preparing people. We do what we can. And, you know, you said you're a newer teacher. That's fine. Like teachers don't, how do you get experience? You have to start somewhere. So, you know, go for it, do what you can, and then let people know that you're preparing them so they can then go work with other people as well. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, most of what you said, I already have built in. In other words, we're starting the first day with the warning and, and et cetera. So thank you very much. And this is recorded. So I'll be watching it again and again. Thank you for your question there. I'm just sharing uh, our part three. We had part four in the books in case people want to see some of the content within different chapters or ask about any of them. And then um, Sasha 
Oh, did we want to? Say, I don't know if any presenters, uh, any contributors to the book are here in the in the Zoom, but if they are, want to speak up, please do. That'd be great. Uh, Sasha, did you have a question? Yes, thank you. Um, I'm always half formulating the question as it comes out. So please I apologize for that, but here it goes. So years ago, I remember I was looking at data from accelerated electrons and they kept having these anomalous um, energy levels that were found. And they kept kind of dismissing them as experiment error or these are just outliers and we'll just kind of brush them out of the data. We'll just clean up the data from these because there's clearly something that's gone wrong. And the more data they collected, the more divergent these anomalies in the data were. And if you just take a step back, it was actually quite clear that it was the beginning of an oscillation pattern and that the oscillation that, that was embedded in the data was maybe a little bit subtle so that the anomalies, you'd have to have a lot more data to be able to stack them to see that oscillation. And I, I think I wondered at the time if you would see the same thing in other fields, like a lot of psychology or consciousness studies. We clean up the data so well, right? Before we do our analyses, we, we're always trimming the outliers. And I, I wonder if we're hiding evidence of oscillating patterns in, in a lot of other data. And for remote viewing in particular, I remember hearing, I think it was two years ago, in passing, I might have been at one of the uh, conferences, maybe the Irva conference, but someone mentioned this effect, this oscillatory effect, uh, a bit of a rebound effect. So you do really well and then you do very poorly. But if you look at enough data, you start seeing that there's actually a pattern there. It's not just you do really well when you start and then you start getting bored and then your performance drops off. But there is actually an oscillation in that data as well. You just have to keep collecting data. You just have to do enough of it. So I'm wondering, I don't know, I'm wondering if you have any opinions on that or if that's something that anyone's looking at um, a little bit more in depth. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I, I could speak to that, but John, do you wanna say anything to that? I'll, I'll go after you, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so there's a few things in there. And first, it's good to see you again. I remember you from the conferences. You're the one who always wears really nice shoes. I remember you're always dressed so cute. So, okay, as far as um, one of the, there's, I find there's a lot of problems with uh, experimental uh, designs and, and the way that uh, science, uh, or current scientists handle things. And so I've been told many times where I saw interesting effects that, well, we can't even talk about this because this wasn't part of our original hypothesis. So when I did that experiment with Dick Behrman and Ad May, and one of the thing, one of the patterns as I was the sole viewer in that project, and I started to notice that I could, 
when things weren't going to go well, when, when there was going to be a miss, I knew there was going to be a miss during the session because I got stressed. I, I felt something was wrong. I got a headache. And then I knew when things went right, how it felt as well. And so I, I told this to, to Beerman and he said, well, why don't you start tracking it? And I did. And in the end, uh, I almost had like a hundred, I, I didn't do it for all the trials, but I think it's somewhere in the book, I think maybe like 20 of the trials. And I almost like, I think I had like a 90% um, success rate of just tracking that I could predict if it went well or not, just how I felt. And I, to me, that was like one of the the best discoveries that I had. And, and I felt like I was learning how to do that as I went along. Uh, but then he said, you know, that wasn't part of our original hypothesis. Um, so sorry, interesting, but can't say anything about that. And so there's constantly things like that. Same thing with displacement, you know, where if you talk to any researcher who, whether they do ARV setups or something similar with matching type tasks, um, there, you're. If you talk to them just one on one, they're gonna say, "Yeah, like I saw a, at least a few cases where there was no question the viewer had had um, described a, a target, but it wasn't the correct one." And um, but that doesn't even get you won't even find that written up in the study. And then they're again, again, they're like, "Well, we can't prove it, or we weren't testing for it." So it's just it's just constant. And that's why there's even some parapsychologists now that are just pretty much almost like they're like, "We need to do something different because the the problem is too." There's the assumption you you know if you do fifty sessions and let let's say all you did. You did 50 sessions and they were all misses, but you had five just like incredible, not just hits, but just such great matches to the target. Even like with some of those examples I showed you, like with Jeff Joffrey's um, uh, picture uh, of the, um, oh, what was that? The Coliseum. Um, if you had that and everything else wasn't good, you would, you could still say, um, you know, look statistically, how likely was it that that was going to be out of everything in the whole universe since it's free response? What are the, what are the possibilities that um, he'd draw that? And that's what the target was. You know, sometimes we have very, it's one thing if there's uh, just an ocean and a viewer gets water, that may still be a match, but you know, it's not that um, rare for water to come up but it could be very rare for something else. Like in one, in a Stanley Krippner project, um, one of the targets was a cartoon half man and half bug. And I got a half man, half bug. So what are the chances that that target would come up? But, but if I did that and then didn't do so well on the other, the immediate assumption, because usually parapsychology projects are testing whether psi is present, that they just, they'll state no psi was present. Now we don't have any proof that there was psi present because we only had a 50% hit rate. And so, so much is getting lost and masked in all of this. And that's why it can be really super frustrating. And, you know, I think it comes back to why are we doing this in the first place? Uh, you know, or, and I don't know, there's so many different reasons why we're doing it, but I think this is ultimately why we get so frustrated and I don't know what the answer is to that. 
thank you. And can I just add on to that, just out of curiosity, so what's your favorite theory, I guess, for displacement after having looked at all the data? Well, um, I, I think there's a few leading ones I would have is sometimes um, we, we're just going, we're defaulting to the easiest photo that's present. Um, now in self-judging, if it's self-judging where we're exposed to both photos, I think that, that that's our feedback. Like it may not supposed to be our feedback, but, but anything that gives you an indication that of if, if you do a session and you're shown two photos and you get excited, like, oh, I wanna see what these are, then you're using that as feedback, even if you're saying you're not. But then the question is, well, why do we get displacement if we're not judging ourselves? But then I, I do know for a fact that viewers are sometimes too focused on their managers and their taskers. So, you know, there's, there's all different kinds of displacement. And I've seen very clear examples where, you know, my student didn't describe the target I was showing them, but they described what was on my desk and what I was doing at that exact moment. And when I talk to them about it, I do find that those are sometimes the students that are a little bit more focused on me, like, oh, what is, what does Deborah think of me or what's she going to say about this? You know, it's, this is all about attention. So as soon as you start to think about something that your attention goes to it, and that's what you're more likely to hone in on. So that doesn't explain everything, but I would just say that I, I think that's, you know, uh, um, one reason why it might happen. Um, and, and then there's a whole bunch of other reasons too that we, we do cover in the book. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to speak to that and then go back to the oscillation. Uh, one reason I left APP is because it's binary ARV. And after working on a ARV for eight or so years, I concluded that the main problem, why you have displacement to the same target to two targets as opposed to displacement in time, which is another matter. The main reason you have displacement is that you have two targets. You're gonna get both targets a lot. So that's why I, pr I promoted uh, unitary ARV where you just have one target, you do an emotion or you can have a single photo. And I have a video on that, which has been online. And, and I know Daz has tried unitary ARV recently and has had some, some success with it. So to me, that's the fundamental reason now there is this displacement in time. Uh, I have a, well, I don't know if I'll call it up, I'll just paraphrase it. Both Ingo and Joe talk about the fact that time is sort of either fuzzy or remote viewing is not precise down to the second minute, hour, or even day. And, and uh, there's a quote in Joe McMonagle's book where he says, well, what if I told you that every time a remote viewer views, he views a little bit in the past or the future as well as the present, and nobody talks about that. So we do talk about it in our book. And is it a bug or a feature of remote viewing? Well, Marty says, well, it's a bug, but it actually is useful in the lottery, which is maybe, maybe we'll get into that today, maybe not. Um, so to me, that's the fundamental problem with uh, ARV, that you have two targets, binary ARV, you have two targets. Um, as an oscillation, that's interesting that you mentioned that data might be sort of circling around or emerging back and forth you know, coming back in some way that's not recognizable at present. Um, one problem is that there have been very few documented, you know, peer-reviewed studies of the method 
uh, method remote viewing, that is CRV, TDRV. There's very few, the parapsychology community does not really study that. And so there's no, there's very little hard evidence about the actual application of an accuracy rates of those studies. Um, but in ARV, it's widely known by almost everybody, like Angela Thompson, that's our poor friend who's uh, recovering from, from uh, health crisis. Um, she said she did ARV many times with Marty and others, and she always starts out gangbusters 90% and it always falls off and she's not gonna do it again. So lots of people experience this decline. Um, and so that's why Ed Mae says, for example, you guys do too much ARV in APP. You do too much, you need breaks and, 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 and uh, taking time from that. Now, Dean Radin had another take on this. Uh, in, over the weekend, he was presenting uh, AMA, Ask Me Anything at APP. And he said, they are using AI and other techniques to analyze their you know, millions of viewers who, who've done ARV on their GOTSI program and try to extract patterns that come out of that. Whether there's recurrence of patterns, he hasn't said yet, but they are definitely trying to bring in uh, artificial intelligence and other means to analyze big data. And also, he, uh, it's a side note, but he has some extraordinarily interesting stuff to say about the psychic basis, genetic basis for psychic powers. And they're working on that in a company called Cognigenics, which he is the chairman of. Check that out if you're interested in that topic. So in terms of whether it, that data can return, uh, another, just another quick take on that is that there's two fellows in Argentina who believes that the stock market shows fractals. And of course, there's a whole school of thinking about that, whether it's true or not. Anyway, they claim that they have traced that and that they're getting some results with that. So it's an interesting topic. I don't think we know a whole lot about this, you know, possibilities of return of patterns within regular remote viewing or ARV. I, I think too, I think it, everything comes back to perception. And I think there's so much that we can learn uh, or understand about what's happening in remote viewing when we look at our regular perception. And if you think about it, our, Per, we don't ever just focus on one thing. Like right now, as we're all together here, we're focused on so many different things, what we, things we want to focus on. And then we're getting, you know, we might call them distractions, but I can see what's going on in the rest of my house. I hear my neighbor outside the door. I see all these, I can see the things on my table and, you know, no, no one is making me focus so much that I can only see you know, your picture or my coffee cup. And, and so where else in life are we being asked to be so focused that we don't get distracted? And all displacement is, is, is distracted. It's divided attention. So I think that if we, uh, there's a lot more to study in this area and, and it'll be kind of cool to see if anyone kind of takes up that area, you know, moving forward. And is it is it possible? Because we want to control our attention, and we want to narrow it so much. Is this even humanly possible, or is this even desirable? Or is there maybe another way, rather than fighting it, we can work with it to get the results that we want? Thank you both. And John, I think it was physicist James Glick who wrote a book in the '90s called Chaos Theory, and he shows the fractal patterns in the stock market. So if anyone is interested in that, that's I think a, an early source on that. Sure, and just to follow up on Cognigenics, uh, I just just uh, Google that or Dean Radin and Cognigenics, they have a whole 
website and a prom promotional video that shows, shows what they're trying to do. The PSI, the side part of it's not actually brought out naturally because they're trying to raise money. Dean Radin's meeting with billionaires trying to get money for this uh, company that they're starting. They're actually going to open an office in Boise, Idaho, where there's a couple of remote viewers. Um, so I don't want to say anything more specific about that because it's kind of off topic, but, but check it out. It's fascinating what they're doing. And then it looks like Rich has had a, his hand up for a while. Uh, yeah, I just had a question on, uh, I guess this is a two-parter, but when you're doing these studies for ARV, um, is it, I guess, technically triple blind, where uh, do the viewers know the purpose for why they are viewing? Like, oh, you're doing this for uh, a horse race, oh, you're doing this for the lottery. And beyond that, do you see a difference in hit rate due to the purpose of the viewing? Or does it seem to not matter because ultimately you're viewing two pictures? Well, John, do you want to answer that? Or... No, go ahead. Okay, so, you know, we're talking about so many different projects. So I could speak to the ones that, that I've run, the formal um, experiments or, you know, out there overall. And that is a really important question. And in terms of do the remote viewers know ultimately what the purpose is for? And I would say a lot of times they do. Um, not always. I've, I've always thought it could be interesting if they didn't know anything, they didn't even know it was for ARV and then they were um, just run through the project to see if that would, and if they only, if they only thought there was one photo and nothing more than that, if, if none of their attention got put on anything else, how would they do? And I think that could be a valid, uh, a valid setup. Um, the thing is, a, a couple issues with that. Um, I, I was actually just on a project where the manager was trying to do that. However, he like he didn't tell us it was for ARV, um, but we all knew enough about ARV that and when our group like had misses, he was talking about two targets or the other photo. So he, if he was trying to keep us from knowing what it was, he didn't, all he did was create confusion. And it's really hard to keep this from experienced viewers who understand setups. And also if you start to have, um, whether like displacement or you have a really strong um, session, but then it doesn't seem to match there. There's just all kinds of signs. So it'd be really hard for anyone that's been doing ARV uh, or uh, to be brought onto a project and not figure it out themselves. And um, being someone who's been on so many projects, including formal projects where they don't always tell me what's going on, I might be different because I'm really curious and nosy and I always wanna know what's going on and it'll drive me absolutely bonkers if I think things are happening that I have in the project that I'm not being told, it, it, it drives me nuts. And, um, and then things don't go well. Uh, I, I create too many problems for my managers because I ask too many questions. But it, it would be interesting, like if you took people who didn't know anything about this at all um, and just ran them through, through it. Um, but I, I don't think that's been done too much from what I'd have to go back and really carefully read the projects. What, um, 
One of the things that we did do in a, in a um, paper that'll hopefully still come out, we were exploring what we called background conditions. So we had, let's see, we had 10 viewers or maybe 12 and, and um, they did 30 sessions and it wasn't ARV, um, it was straight RV, but then we wanted to see if they had an easier time describing objects against white backgrounds or objects in their natural background or in a background that was totally illogical, like a boat in the desert. And we wanted to see what they would, if they would do better. And, um, and when I was setting up the project, I actually consulted with Ed May and he, um, I didn't want to have like matching tasks because it wasn't for ARV. So we didn't, we didn't need to analyze it by, there's no reason we needed to introduce what's called decoy photos, like extra photos to do a matching task. Like I just wanted to go per session to score it. Um, how many perceptions are correct and how many perceptions are incorrect. That's what I wanted to do, but I was told by Ed May that if we wanted to get the paper published, we should do the setup of where a judge tries to see if they could pick the right photo, which does mirror the ARV setup. So um, I was worried that that would create displacement. So for that one, we, we had two methods of analysis and we didn't tell the viewers about the second method. So the viewers self-scored and then we had independent judges score where they added up every perception and every sketch if it was correct or not. But then we also did the second type of matching task and, um, and didn't tell them. And they didn't know about it because they were focused on the first kind of judging. And, and we saw, as far as we could tell, we saw very little displacement to the, the other photos in the set for the second kind of analysis. So that makes me think that there is something to this thing of not having the viewers focused on everything. But then you do get into to ethical questions and you, especially with ARV, like if you're gonna use viewers and then you're gonna take their sessions and you're gonna wager with them and that, I think that opens up a whole can of worms with ethics. And, um, and some would get, you know, feel like they were being exploited, not, not just because they would want a cut of the money, although some definitely, you know, would feel that way, but it's just, I, I know I've had my sessions used for things that I, were not um, said to me up front. And I felt, and, and again, I could tell something was up for a while. It drove me crazy until I figured out what. And then I really felt like I had kind of been betrayed or lied to. And um, this has happened quite a bit. So ethics is a big question there. Don't know if that answered the question. Um, yes, thank you. Yeah, did you have an opinion on that, John? Um, you want to read what part was there any part that wasn't answered? Uh, I guess, um, if you, I guess specifically, if there was any statistical difference between the hit rate, if, uh, but I guess if you didn't study for it, you wouldn't know. Um, but yeah, I was just curious if it seemed like the purpose of the viewing impacted the viewing session or if ultimately, um, it, it didn't matter. It was just a person is making an association between this picture and an event or a, an outcome. Uh, so I didn't know if the actual purpose, whether it be uh, the lottery or horse racing or anything seemed to impact it at all. 
you know, just to reinforce that, I think starting with Russell Targ and others who have been active in it, including myself and Deborah, purpose is everything. Intention, you know, Bruce's book, my teacher's book was called Intention. Um, it's, it's all about, and also if, if it's the intention is for some sort of positive good, that seems to be a factor. If it's just random or immoral, it doesn't seem to uh, have as much oomph, especially we're talking about regular remote viewing. ARV, again, we don't have any hard studies to show one way or the other. But uh, for example, that team that won 325,000, they were all knew what they were doing, but they had a very distinct, uh, and they worked well together. You know, they're a coherent team, and that, that's very important. Uh, Targ pointed out that the Harari Targ, the effort for the silver futures and the investor started out well with the nine hits, and then afterwards it fell apart, and there were even lawsuits, and Targ struggled for two years to figure out whether it was okay to try to win money using ARV, and he concluded that it was. Um, so I think for sure, uh, team spirit is important, and that's why some people prefer to work by themselves, so they don't have any, but just themselves and their own confidence. And uh, so that's just a few other points added to that. Yeah. There, Perfect, thank there, you. There was one project that Lori Williams did with uh, her first husband and, uh, and Lynn uh, Buchanan helped set it up with, and Marty Rosenblatt ran this, and this was, probably uh, in the maybe early 2000s. And, and uh, for that, the viewers initially didn't know anything about the, what it was being used for. And they didn't know that there was gonna be wagering involved. And supposedly their first hundred trials, now they these were not in-depth sessions. They were basically doing ideograms where they had to identify if they were animal or, or mineral or natural, uh, something along those lines, but they just did a quick ideogram. And supposedly they had like, like a hundred in a row correct. Now, you know, we couldn't verify that, but a, a couple of people have said that. Uh, they, they had really great results for the first hundred. And then they, then they found out that it was being wagered with, and then their results tanked. And now I thought, well, gosh, you do a hundred and you're going to get burned, burn out, um, even on those. But, um, when I had talked to Lori about this a while ago, she really felt that it was because of the money issue. And in, in those days, um, she, she had been like a Christian, uh, missionary and just had a lot of, uh, different pictures about what was right as far as using your psychic abilities for, for financial gains. So she really felt that once they did know that, that's what led to their decrease. But of course you can't say for sure what it was because people do get burned out after so many trials. Interesting, thank you. And Ida, it looks like had a question. Um, yes, thank you very much. Um, you brought up the issue of uh, ethical, moral on um, the tasker or because you had felt betrayed by how your answers were used. And that, um, that reminded me that um, within the last month or so, um, Fabian Rush, who I don't know, he was a participant. He brought up that at the beginning of, if I remember this correctly, he always, uh, he wants to know, he asked, you know, he does a, 
check on is this real is this in other words is this going to be a um i can't remember exactly how you phrased it is it real or is this question is this project about um something fake and he used the targets of you know you could use a photo you could fake a photo we talked about that a photoshop thing in other words did he feel comfortable knowing whether it was going to be for a real purpose or if it was just a hoax or or what and this it brought to mind that conversation because when you talk about ethical and moral is that another consideration that you could add to your since you seem to have that ability that you could add does this in there does this ta does this tasker have a uh, i'm trying to think of the word i don't want to use the word immoral because people have different definitions but do they have some kind of under you know is it is there going to be harm but that would be based on your definition of harm also is there another way to phrase it internally so you would say i don't want to do this i'm refusing this because you say you have that ability to feel whether it's um there's something not yeah. quite right yes well many viewers do do just that when they are approached with a project or they're considering they do use their intuitive abilities in a number of ways, whether they set it up as a formal session or they just kind of tune in or go with the feelings. So definitely that can be useful. You know, there's there's some that will just then not even embark on a project or there's others who will say, well, I don't have a good feeling about this, but I, I kind of am curious. That's kind of what I do is you know, it's, I hate turning down projects because they can just, there's so much you can learn from them, but I, I've, I've been in situations where I should have never gotten started. I knew that. And usually I don't stay that long, but really I was kind of doing a disservice to uh, not just myself, but to the people that I, like, if I know, if I have a bad feeling and I join the project anyway, like even if they're up to something, I still feel like I did a disservice to them because, you know, I should have just said no. It just it just is interruptive to anyone to then withdraw from a project. So not that the viewers should blame themselves, but just I do think we need to all be careful and, and use our abilities that we have. You know, there there's so oftentimes, um, especially researchers, they just don't realize that remote viewers are using their, they're being perceptive way outside of the scope of the project. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we need to do that. We need to be more discerning. And, you know, just as uh, I've been in this for so long, and when I first even embarked on, on my um, psychic explorations and started to do readings for people, I, um, I, I started out professionally, I lived in Sedona, Arizona, where there's a lot of psychics and artists. And I worked out of a few different bookstores and I found like there was, there was just endless scenarios where my ethics, my own personal ethics were being tested. And in those days I was a single mom. I was broke. I could barely pay my $400 a month rent for the trailer that we lived in. 
And I would be presented with these scenarios where, um, you know, I knew it was like evil was knocking on my door and I like, you know, people would offer to pay all my living expenses. And like, there were so many things that seemed like it could have just made my life easy. And it was all like people wanting to make use of my psychic abilities or maybe not just my abilities, the people that wanted to, for me to like move in with them and they'd support me. Um, but there was just constant, I, I had like one week where, I mean, people were knocking on my door, people that I knew were unethical wanting me to do things. And I just had to keep saying no to that. And, and so I'm sharing this because it's not, you know, when, when, when the money doesn't matter and you say no, it's not a big deal. But when the money does matter, but you still say no, because you know, it's just not going to be um, this, the person doesn't have the best intentions um, for your work or for you um, that I look at these as kind of spiritual tests and they're not easy. But what I found was in the long run, like when you let go of things that are not good, then even better opportunities show up you know, and some, and it gets back to the patients and, um, you know, knowing that, okay, there, you know, don't, don't go for the easy money, but just go for the rewarding, the rewarding projects, the rewarding people to work with, because otherwise you're in the end, you'll just get burned anyway. I'd like to add to that too. Um, so in our couple of stories that we have in our book, um, and also, uh, yeah, so let's start with that. So, this, the subject is when money comes waltzing in. Uh, two stories of $1 million being offered to somebody in the PSI community. The first story I've already, I guess I haven't alluded to it, is when uh, a Hollywood star came forward with a million dollars to give to transdimensional systems for salaries. So that worked out quite well for a while. Um, and people were viewing $80,000 a year for a couple of years. Um, and then there's a story in our book about why that fell apart. Uh, it had to do with, uh, by report, a rival uh, said to this Hollywood star, if you don't give us mil millions of dollars, we're going to uh, expose what you're doing. And this Hollywood star wanted privacy. And in addition, a member of the team went public with the knowledge that the that money had been given to TDS. So that fell apart, but it was very productive for a while. The second story goes back to J.B. Ryan. Um, oh, and it reminds me of the point I wanted to make that you can actually remote view the outcome of something before you do it. And in particular, Prue and John Vivanco, who was uh, her right-hand man, would ask us before we joined the company, can we remote view you to find out your intentions? And we, most all of us said, sure. And they did, and we, we all got in. So. And someone also, by the way, has suggested that, why don't we remote view how to improve remote viewing? Uh, George, I think it's been, uh, a guy named George has been promoting that for a long time. But to continue with this story about a million dollars. So J.B. Ryan, you know, was a famous researcher with the Wiener cards. He really put um, remote uh, P PSI on the map in the United States. And one day, a, uh, an insurance man, a real estate man came into the office and said to his assistant, I, you know, I really admire uh, J.B. Ryan's work and I'd like to put a million dollars into helping him build a, a facility, but it has to be on the West Coast. And J.B. Ryan, uh, the ears perked up and 
his eyes lit up and he said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you, and he assigned a, a friend, a woman to go out and check it out. So the woman went to the West Coast and uh, met with a man named Taylor, the uh, real estate man on the West Coast. And he showed them the Pacific Palisade, which was a very tony place at the time uh, where the new facility was gonna be built. He showed them the three houses he, that he was gonna set aside for J.B. Ryan and Harold Sherman and this woman. And she came back really excited and, and reported to J.B. Ryan. So Harold Sherman said, J.B. Ryan almost flew to the West Coast without a plan, a plane, and he was so excited by this, this offer. So things progressed and Harold Sherman, Harold Sherman was another psychic uh, who wrote a book, Thought Through Space, a very fascinating book, uh, along with a couple other people. He's a, he, he and J.B. Ryan also were close friends and he also knew Ingo Swan which is where this comes from, the letter that he wrote to Ingo Swan. So finally, uh, Sherman and this other woman went to the West Coast to see how things were going. And the tailor, the insurance guy, the uh, real estate guy didn't really pay much attention to it for a while. So they began to get worried. And at one point then, uh, Taylor asked this woman who was the heir to a fortune and had let that be known, could you put up the $1 million? I'm having trouble, some trouble with my bank. And the woman said, absolutely not, not until you put money in. So she went back to Ryan, uh, who's in North Carolina and, and gave him the news. So at some point, uh, a friend or an acquaintance walked into this, the office and said, do you know much about Mr. Taylor? And they said, no, we don't know much about Mr. Taylor, but you know, he's been very generous. And this man said, well, he's filing for bankruptcy. And his plan was to get J.B. Ryan to come to the West Coast set up a think tank, which would attract people, fill up the real estate development they were building and all would be well. So that's a cautionary tale. They didn't think to try to remote view the outcome of that one, but also to watch out when money comes waltzing in the door. Yeah, excellent. And Deborah, I was in Sedona in the eighties when things were just getting started and was very successful there and then money came waltzing in you might say but um i'm really i'm glad that you you brought up the remote view the outcome because i've learned to always in any relationship or any whatever but always just sit down take a breath and and do that to do that very thing i mean there are some people who had who were quite prescient about a particular situation. And, um, you know, we, we have to learn. We have to, like you said, we have to learn one way or another to, um, to follow that. Anyway, thank you, but I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, I finally got to meet you, so to speak, on Zoom. Yeah, well, thank you for being here. And, you know, this is a challenging topic, so topic of course, ethics, because there really isn't, you know, it's it's a continuum, it's a blurry line, and, um, you know, it's, it's a very individual choice, too, because I, I think it's what may, what may even be unethical for one person to do would not be unethical for another person to do if it goes if it goes along with what they truly believe. And as we know, we live in a time right now where people have such 
op opposite views of each other of of what's right you know so even um you know say invading the capital you know some of us might just think well how could anyone have done that that's the worst thing anyone could have done and then there could be people who think well that was their duty if the elections were stolen that was their duty to do so so depending on what your beliefs are it it really you know it's not like um it's not like there's any force that comes down and says this is right or wrong it's all for us to like stay really dialed into what we feel is best for ourselves. Um, yes, that's like arguing whether broccoli or carrots are better for your eyesight or whatever. But thank yeah. you again. And any other questions? I think um, Kiao has got another question for you. He's had hand up for a while. Of course, I have three more, but we're going to go one at a time. This one's a really easy one. Um, if, if you, I don't know if you guys are familiar yet with extraocular viewing. I've just started finding out about it. Uh, and, but So the question is, have you heard of anyone using a form of dousing with their hands for scratch and win tickets? In other words, scratch and win tickets, and people are kind of like, you know, dousing or dousing being used for, for ARV or, you know, RV to win in lotteries? Not with any success that I've I've heard, no. But they use people use quite a variety of methods, and some some have been successful with those scratcher tickets. Yeah. So that that is interesting with the scratcher tickets. I heard hadn't heard that, but uh, in terms of uh, what we're calling direct viewing of graphs, which for some people isn't viewing, it's where they're um, and actually um, coral is one of the people, I think Carl's still here. Um, Carl, do you wanna tell us like what you've been doing um, when you tune into a graph, but you're kind of doing it with a feeling dowsing approach. Right, um, Yeah, I, <laughs> I think, I know Daz does it too. Um, sometimes my ideogram actually reproduces the, the chart. Um, and I dowse my way in the position of in and position of art and feel I use a combination, but I use a dowsing rod. Um, this is it here. I'm using that for dowsing. I have much more success with this rather than a pendulum. Mm. And I do, I do... After my son, you know the wovo kinder, the kinder eggs. In the kinder eggs, there's like one surprise in every three. That's a decent one. I saw my son doing it, using his hand to pick them. And time after time, infallibly, he'd get the best egg. And he was using his hand. So I started using my hand a bit. It's, it's the same as a dowsing rod. You program it and you tell the sensation that you want. So... Sometimes I feel it warmer, or sometimes I get a cool breeze. Or, but I mean, I've never tried the lottery or anything like that. I, I think that's way above my possibilities. And um, thank you for, for that. And uh, Daz, you want to say anything about that? Do you feel like when you're doing your 
your ideograms, would you call that dowsing as well with your hands or how, how would you look at that? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know really, because it spontaneously happened uh, just in the fact that I was doing uh, a lot of cryptocurrency work. I noticed that uh, my initial ideogram on a cryptocurrency target um, started having what I feel is a flow, a flow mechanism to it. Uh, and I uh, over, you know, we've been doing this for three years now. And I noticed around about a year ago that the ideograms were definitely more, as I was doing more and more of them, they were getting more of a flow nature. And I was finding that when we were doing feedback on those, that the flows did have some resemblance to the market flow of that cryptocurrency. I don't think it's dowsing. No, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's just a natural pr process for me that's, that's developed in the ideogram process. Um, really interesting how it's developed. Um, and I'm keen to develop it further because it, yeah, it literally is the ideogram is representing the, the market flow. And I'm not even, I don't even have that intention in my mind when I say to do the target It's just, just happening. Uh, yeah, that's all I can say on it, really. But yes, yeah, definitely, it doesn't feel like dowsing. It just, for me, being a CRV person, it just feels like a, a flow of an ideogram process. That's all I can say on it. Yeah, I wanted to pull up because I have a couple of years and I'm just seeing if I can get those up here. I think I have corals too for the charts. Um, does any, has it, does anyone else want to respond to where they're using? Dowsing. Um, let's see if I can. Oh, here we go. So this was corals. Um, here was an example, and um, this was where she felt out the shape of the um, direction of the chart, and. And let's see if I can get to the next one. Nope. Um, now, now, was that, Coral, was that for Igor's project that you did that with? I think that was Yeah, that's the work with Igor, yeah. Okay. And so Igor has just started to uh, do this more, having viewers tune directly into the graph. So it's not, it's not ARV, it's just, um, seeing what the graph is going to look like for the feedback. And as um, the, and we discovered that more people are doing this and started asking about it. And that's I'm really excited about this chapter because um, I hadn't really heard of people doing this and I had tried it and had a good result. And then as we're talking to people, more and more are um, coming out. So this was one of Daz's and he had several, but this was just a few that we grabbed to show. So um, you can see, and, and if Daz, you wanna speak up about any of these, some, some of these are spot, like really seem spot on and then others are yeah. kind of indicative, indicators of going up or down. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've absolutely nailed it yet. It seems to be a process that's, personal well it feels personal to me it feels like it's under development you know i guess like the ideogram process is, itself uh, it takes a long time to uh to work for you as, as an individual and i feel that this is almost like a mutation that's 
becoming a personal yeah personal language for me but it's really interesting for me because even though it's not completely accurate i can kind of roughly tell that you know on a on a given time scale that there's going to be some some peaks or troughs uh, and to look out for those at, at the very least which is you know when you were talking cryptos and markets there if you know there's going to be a dip uh it gives you an indicator that you hold on for the, for the end of the month and uh buy a bit more in the dip kind of situation yeah and like with with the arv we're all we've only got two options up or down or uh, so this is at least giving us that much information, if not uh, a lot more. So um, I thought this was a nice one here. And then I'll just go to, I love Daz's photography as well. And um, let's see. This was, I'll just show you one here. I won't go into all of this. This was my first attempt and um, I didn't know what I was doing for this. A client asked if I could do this and I pretty much just told myself I was going to sit here until I got like a really strong impression. And I, I thought it would take a while, but just after a couple of minutes, I saw the letter W. So I just wrote out W and then I wanted to see like what the tail end was, like the W already told me, but then I just tuned in again. And um, and then I did get that it was gonna um, close going up. And then the um, client sent me back the next day, the um, chart and he put the my uh, sketch in red overlaid on top of um, the graph. So he said that this was helpful to him. And then the next, one, I got a letter T, which I didn't think was a very good match, but the client again was happy because he said that this was like the closest to a T did show him that it was going to be dropping down. So um, the next one I got uh, fingers, just an image of a hand. Um, and so I just sketched the fingers. And then I also, um, again, tried to get just the end of it. And that turned out to be pretty good. But then he he wanted me to start like saying he got excited about these and he's like, well, how is it going to open up from the next day? Like what's going to happen the, the day before and the the following day? And he had all these questions and I I, I stayed up like all night long um, trying to get impressions. And I did by the end of the week, I was exhausted because I tend to do my sessions at night when the only time I have time and I would just be like up all night and, and get stressed. And I started to like tune into the client and I was just, and then he didn't really know exactly how he could make use of this. And he was new to these topics. So I told him, you know, why don't you go get some training in project management and I'm going to take a break and we'll see what happens. But then I was really excited to hear Julia Mossbridge has been having success. John Bavanco has been doing this. Um, Pam Coronado, um, maybe not so much with financial charts, but she said she uses um, graphs all the time. So like for those of you that do readings on people who like want to know about their present or future, you could see forms of graphs or paths or things like that. Um, the, this seems to work quite well. So I think this could be just something that really uh, picks up for people, you know, and, and I, 
I just love that we have so many different ways to go about using our abilities, whether it's through standard ARV or through this or with the dowsing. You know, I think we should be open to all different methods. And as long, I know we have some purists here, you know, so if you want to call remote viewing one thing and call the other things something else, that that's great. Um, I always found it interesting that in the military, uh, and like Paul Smith, he teaches remote viewing and he also teaches dowsing. Uh, so um, I always found it interesting that like when, when I was, I've not personally been that interested. I, I don't connect personally that much with the dowsing. And so I was like, well, that we're remote viewing here. We're not, we're not dowsing. It's not the same thing. But really, it doesn't matter. I just think it's helpful to call it what it is and try to define it and then be open to all, all methods. I'd like to say something, uh, add a footnote about Julia, um, because it, it, she said that she got the graphs sort of upside down and John Vivanco got them right side up. So it's possible if that continues that that's another way to go, sort of like when you get numbers in ARV, you may get them upside down, some people do. But I also want to say something more generally about dowsing. Um, again, I don't think there are any scientific studies, or maybe there are, people correct me if there are, about the efficacy of dowsing. And people teach dowsing, but I wanted to give you just quickly a personal experience. So I was doing a murder case uh, that was in uh, Oakland, California, where I lived. And so we had a team of viewers, Daz was one, and we wanted to get the location. So I'll keep this pretty short. Um, I consulted with two dowsers. One was recommended, uh, he recommended the best dowser on the West Coast. This man was in the dowsing society and he recommended someone up in Seattle. So I hired that guy. And I also had a the local dowser I went to and saw her method. I tried some myself. And so they tried to produce a location for where this murder took place in an area that was known to them as the Bay Area. They were both off by about 30 miles. Daz, on the other hand, through successive taskings and some other viewers too, got us within 250 feet of the murder site on a hillside. Um, this was written up in, a, uh, in the Aurora Remote Viewing Group and Daz posted the link, it's, it's online somewhere. Um, so it, it was so difficult though to find the body that the police standing on the spot said they would not have known that that was the spot until the killer uh, showed them where to dig. They dug and it was there. And Daz had drawn an exact picture of, of what that hole looked like. Furthermore, he got Snake Road, which is within 250 feet. But the lesson of the story was that it's very difficult, as we all know, to get locations because things are so, like if you're at sea or in the desert or even any place really, but also, I, I will never hire another dowser again unless I see some bona fides that they actually can do what they claim they can. And thank you, Daz, for those sessions. They were great. That's really cool. And did you say, was that written up somewhere? Yeah, it's like a 30-page paper that the Aurora Remote Viewing Group put out. Mm -hmm. and, I don't and have the link handy. I don't have the yeah. link handy, but it's online somewhere still. That would be cool to see. I. That's a new one for me. Um, great. Uh, any other questions? Yes, go ahead. I uh, think Taz has his hand up though, doesn't he? I, yeah, I was just gonna, you know, we were talking about the flow diagrams just now. I was just wondering, um, 
because because it's all new and experimental, and I think we're all coming at it from different angles. It would be interesting to see um, maybe some developments on if you could do ARV problems, you know, the the general binary problems, but with the instead of having pictures as the binary outcomes, have a uh, a binary outcome f- flow kind of diagram, you know, and then see if the remote viewers could. Um, recreate that in their in their arv sessions literally just as a quick flow diagram and if that may uh, you know that may get rid of the displacement problem because you know th- then you don't have any problems in the targets of one having more weight or entropy or interest in, than the other so you're talking about having a, a diagram like a like a ideogram through a series of steps visually on this well, I, was, I was thinking the actual feedback for the uh arv targets you know one uh, one outcome will be an a, an upflow and another outcome will be a downflow and you literally just mm-hmm. get the remote viewer to flow which outcome will, will be presented to them in the future and oh, then yeah. there's there you know because there's no entropy there's no um there's no weight to it, you know. One one doesn't have a bit more color or interest than the other. Um, that might possibly remove the negative things that displacement might attract a person towards a, a certain outcome. That sounds like a wonderful idea. You're going to launch a study on that soon, right, or a trial, right? <laughs> yeah, that that's such a great idea, and I could see, especially like for the over underscore for sporting events, that that could work out really well. And fast as well. The ARV for fa- on that, you know, just literally just doing a doing a flow. You're talking you're talking seconds. Yeah, yeah, good, great idea. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, other people will try that too. Any other comments? Just anyone want to share anything? Hi. I have a question, a proxy question from Josh who had to, to hop off, which was, um, does anybody have any practical suggestions or techniques which they use to avoid displacement to the, the other target when doing binary IOV? Oh, I'm just plugging in my computer here. Um, <laughs> One moment. I I do a couple things that I think are useful when I actually follow through and do them. And my favorite thing to do is I want to I want to do everything possible to separate the feedback from the judging photos, whether as a self judge or even if there's independent judges. So to emphasize the feedback. Uh, my favorite thing to do is to print. I know I'm going to print out my feedback and then I'm going to like make it larger. I'm going to tape it to my wall. And then during my session, I'll, I'll task myself to look at the picture on my wall. And that, especially if I'm getting my feedback through the computer, so I can emphasize, okay, well, the judging photos aren't on my wall they're on the computer, but not there. So um, also maybe making the judging photos smaller, um, changing them up in some way from the actual feedback photo. And I think that can be useful both for the viewer and if you have a 
uh, an independent judge with them as well. Just um, anyone else want to offer any suggestions? I just I, I wanted to whoa uh, just sort of taking that to a slight uh, angle, but it's it's quite interesting. So it's on alphanumerics and using big targets, vis vis visibly big targets. Just to add this in, it's also in our book. Um, at SRI, they did some experiments with trying to recognize words and alphanumerics. And one experiment, they did have rather large cards that they used. And I know one remote viewer used rather large numbers to try to get lottery wins, and he was successful with that. Deborah's mentioned that too, and she also did some alpha experiment. Maybe she'll mention that. Um, in other words, it's possible that visually prominent targets may make a difference for some people. But again, there's been no studies of this that I'm aware of. And um, yeah, I would just say for anyone that is really prone to displacement, which I think we kind of all are to some extent, but, uh, or maybe we all are to a lot of extent, but just to avoid self-judging because that does seem for some, a lot of people to really be problematic. I mean, I wish I could say avoid self-judging and you won't have it, but I just think you'll have it less. Um, we differ on that. Uh, I think that both methods uh, from, all the work we've been doing show that both methods can work. And just as a sort of historical note, Marty has you know, proposed many different ways to avoid displacement going all the 15 years he's been doing that. I guess his latest is, is positive reinforcement when you have a hit you know, and drawing the target in different ways. And John McNamara is also exploring that. But um, all these methods, uh, if you limit them to psychological, I think you're not necessarily going to get a sufficiently higher hit rate. That's why I think that the setup is quite important um, in terms of reducing feedback loops and all of that. Um, again, that's sort of a difference that I've had with Marty for some time. Um, but we, Deborah and I differ a little bit on the uh, relative importance of self-judging versus having an independent judge. Yeah, and and it is hard because really there's so there's so few studies that look at all these different variables and then because there are so many variables it's really it's really hard to pinpoint them even if the study's designed to just look at a couple you've always got these unknown factors um one one unknown factor that comes to mind that hasn't been studied at all is the influence of wagering and, and this is something too that uh, you know, I, I, I'm finding this to be more and more a problem that the less a remote viewer or project manager can talk about the project, uh, the less we know. I mean, that that's just sounds logical, but, but usually the thing that's not being talked about is how much is the person wagering? When are they wagering? Is the wagering always in alignment with the remote viewers session or what happens when you have multiple viewers in um, where their their sessions are being pulled to, pulled together you would think logically the more 
um, viewers who have the same thing, the like a group of viewers are going to be stronger than individuals, but actually that's not really bearing out in the research. Uh, so sometimes you could have like a group of six viewers and half go for one, uh, half of their sessions point to one option, half to the other. But the thing that people don't want to talk about is what they're doing with their wagering. And I understand in society talking about finances is like the taboo topic. Like people are more usually willing to talk about their sex lives than they are about finances. And this is really true here in ARV. And so what impact does that have on the overall results? You know, we've also looked at uh, more so we've looked at issuing a prediction. What impact does issuing a prediction have on the overall results? And is it possible that if you we've done this with um, ARV and, and pres presidential elections. So again, we, we don't have anything definitive, but it does appear that, you know, if a group says, oh, well, 20, 20 out of, well, in this case, I think that we had like 50 viewers, you know, the majority um, for the, when we were doing the election for Trump and Hillary Clinton, almost everything pointed that either Hillary or an, an independent candidate was gonna win and Trump was not. There was only one person and it's interesting, I'm saying this now, John Vivanco participated. He, he had a stellar session and it completely pointed that Trump was gonna be the winner. He was about the only one in the whole um, group and again they didn't know they didn't know this was for the presidential election so that's another example where we didn't tell them what this was for uh, but um, all their sessions pointed indicated that it was not going to be Trump and as we all know that was that was not the case so um, I lost track of why I was talking about this in the first place but oh about um, just going back to uh, oh, but we had issued, that was the thing. So what happened with that one was we issued the prediction that it was not going to be Trump. And then, ha and then we changed our mind, like after we put it out on Facebook for a day or so, what the prediction was going to be in advance, a couple weeks in advance of the elections, we realized that maybe we shouldn't have the prediction out there. So we took it down and then it created the opportunity to have two groups, the people that had seen the Facebook post who were exposed to the prediction and those who weren't. And from that, we basically, well, we can't say for sure, but it does seem that um, it's a possibility that those who were exposed to the prediction um, did did get things wrong. So it's not definitive, but we're starting to think like if someone says this team is going to be the winning team, then during it's a retrocausal reaction. But when you're doing your session, you're tuning into not the right feedback, but essentially the prediction becomes the feedback and it becomes the wrong feedback. So we know that. But then what happens if someone actually goes and places a wager, puts puts money on something that can have a really big impact and but we don't know no one talks about it 
And part of my concern now too is some some of you guys are just aware of um, different projects out there right now um, where viewers are being recruited and they're asked to sign non-disclosure agreements. And, uh, and I think I I'm concerned about that because as we're trying to learn from each other right now and sharing information so we can improve in this area, there's kind of more and more viewers that are being brought onto projects where they're told like, you can't talk about this. You can't talk about what you did. They're not being told what's happening with the money. Um, there's just, uh, uh, so not people aren't, it's not even just that they're not talking about it, but now they're signing agreements where if they talk about it, they're gonna have to you know, risk being fined or, or a lawsuit against them because some of these agreements are rather punitive. So that's not really gonna help progress. It's just gonna um, stop it is my opinion on that. But uh, anyone um, else? I wanted to, I wanted to uh, address this question that Paul Cosby's raised. Um, and I'm not, I think we should do it verbally because I'm not quite sure what he's, what you're getting at Paul, uh, when you have a single ARV question and always get the same result 20 straight times does that negate the 70% limit? Could you say more what you're doing and what, what you're asking there? Uh, yeah, John, I, I had a, uh, a certain question that I posed to myself uh, and the mechanism that I've been taught for ARB means that I, I can know what the question is and still come up with a blind result. And uh, I've come up with a blind result that was absolutely the same. It was, the answer was no. Uh, 30 straight times, which, you know, I mean, that's 30 times over 100%. And so, you know, that's statistically significant to certainly not 50-50 and it's not 70%. And I'm just wondering, uh, does that, is that valid? I mean, because you, everybody's, everybody's very firm that 70% is as high as you're ever going to get. Was that a meaningful personal uh, question that you've been um, exploring? The, the question was very definitive, uh, very clear cut. I've had training in how to pose questions from project managers. So I, I know the question is not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a clear cut, unequivocal question. I just meant, was it important to you personally, the answer to that question? Intensely personal. So, yeah, anytime you get 10 or 20 in a row, that's significant for something, but whether that actually is useful for your personal life is totally up to you. If it were a non-important question, then it would be possibly more remarkable because we don't know what your subconscious is doing with this. So that's my brief answer. Hope that's <laughs> well, I also want to really be careful that um, insane, like the 70% limit, we don't want to limit ourselves to thinking that's all we can get. And that's, again, that's not to say, I mean, people have gotten way more than 70% um, for, for a certain number of trials, but, and, and we have to be so careful with these percentages and stats because, you know, at what point do we do the cutoff? Are we talking about 10 in a row, 20 in a row? Well, for some people that's going to go way above 70. What about 100 in a row or 200 in a row? Like in some ways, the percentage is kind of meaningless. In other ways, though, I don't know. I, I don't want to well, put 
it's for anybody. Or just, I think we're just using that as a ballpark range, you know, maybe 65 to 70 percent. And I think for sure, uh, like Don Walker had, I thought he said 23 or 25 in a row. And Liz in Australia had that number too, but they didn't document it. And then I cited earlier that APP, when they keep at it so much, um, actually only three people have 70% over um, when they've had over 20 sessions. So I agree with the general point you're making that there are clear exceptions in it. And it's partly related to what what's the purpose they wanna do this for. If you're just keeping it endlessly to get good stats and, and join APP, I pros, that's one thing. And then there's other motivations too. So I, I take your point, yeah. Yeah, and then again, this isn't just for, you know, any kind of, it may be that other kinds of remote viewing, uh, you know, you have a lot higher percentage. If this is just for uh, a general ballpark with, with ARV with, and, uh, yeah, and of course, there's always going to be outliers, and that's kind of what we're what we're all looking for, right? We we want to yeah. know with each other, you know, who's who's getting great results. What are they doing? Can we, you know, try it with ourselves? Uh, yeah. But I guess we have to come up with some kind of number. I also just wanted to make a general statement about the book and, and why we're doing it in, in ARV. It's we focus on. Uh, you know, games, sports, uh, the lottery, financials, partly because people are really interested in doing that. And both Marty and Russell Targ say, you know, if you can bring, uh, show that you can make a lot of money doing this, it'll help uh, promote the uh, PSI in, in, the, in the country. Other people disagree with that. Um, but that's, you can also use ARV for just general questions, not related to any of those. You could actually, like Daz just suggested a way to to sort of to, to draw through things. Uh, and you can use ARV for questions like, is this business going to succeed or not? Otherwise you could just do a, a complete um, remote viewing session, which is what Transdimensional Systems did a lot with that. Um, so ARV doesn't have to be limited to financial things by any means, but it hasn't been explored enough in that direction, in my opinion. Guys, I'm aware that we're uh, quite a bit over two hours here do you want do you want to end soon is there any last questions i i know Kiara's had his hand up for a while should we should we that the last question for you guys sure sure okay i'll try and make it really easy um i'm into learning about pk and of course i've read dr joseph gallenberger's book relative to lottery in las vegas and all that and uh, i just finished ted owens thing uh by jeffrey mishlove pk man and in the chapter 11, he writes out the audio that you heard once, Deborah. And of course, I saw the interview. You said you fell asleep, which is perfectly natural. There's many things that do that, have that same effect on me. Have you had a chance to see the chapter 11 in PK Man book to compare if the audio is, is faithful to that or it's a version or a little bit? I know it's a loaded question, so... In terms of the recordings that I had listened to, yeah. um, you know, I I have not. I think I might have the the book in storage, but when I can, I will take a look and and see. I don't know how close it was to what it said in that chapter. Um, you know, I in listening to the recordings, and for those who aren't familiar, he was someone who supposedly 
could control, Ted Owens could control the weather. And, uh, and he did it with the help of supposedly uh, different uh, alien type of entities. And I do have some reason to believe that there is some truth to that. Uh, in, in the recordings that I listened to, it, you know, it, it didn't seem like it was, it was the kind of thing where, where you hear a technique and it's like, oh, I'll, I'll do this technique. Like it was, I, I mean, he, it was more kind of like leading people through hypnosis, but as opposed to, you know, where afterwards, even listening to it several times, I could like list out, here's the exact approaches that he used. It was more connecting to these entities. And um, I, I have reason to believe that I did connect with those entities and they started causing me some difficulties. So I stopped. Um, and the reason I ha I believe that is because I um, had a couple um, clairvoyants look at me and not tell them what I had been doing. And they described the exact entities that Ted Owens talked about and they saw them um, around me and, and traced it to some problems I was having with some headaches and, and um, the way I, and feeling totally exhausted. And they did, um, one person did an energy healing and then I was totally fine, but I stopped, you know, it's, it's probably kind of questionable to be um, allowing alien beings to be plugging into your, uh, in, into your head for any period of time. So especially when it's putting you unconscious and you don't know what's happening. So uh, yeah, like I said, you know, you can know what's um, uh, wise to do, but then sometimes you just have to go through it before you uh, you just got to learn that lesson directly, or at least some of us do. Excellent. Thanks for the chat, guys. Uh, I'm sure on behalf of everyone here, uh, we want to thank you for a great talk this evening. It's been really informative. And like myself, I'm sure everyone's looking forward to getting a copy of the book as well. Thanks. Dan. Yeah. And feel free to reach out to us as well. If you guys have any questions or anything we didn't answer, or just you wanted to ask privately. Um, you can get in touch with us, uh, me through my website, DebraKatz.com is the easiest, or DebraKatz at Yahoo. And um, John, uh, do you want to, we could do give our emails if you want. Uh, Knowles 8 at gmail.com. Okay. Thank Excellent. you for hosting us. Thanks, and everybody. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for your time and all the great questions tonight. It's been, it's been a fun evening. Thank you, guys. Okay, take care. Yeah, take care, Bye. everyone. Have a good weekend. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.